Good evening. My name is Tandikam Kandawiri, and I'm a professor here at LSC. Uh, first, we make welcome you here for, and, and thank you for being here. This is the first event in a series of uh, talks under what's called the Africa Talks uh, program, which in turn is part of the African Initiative of LSE. And the African Initiative has a number of components. Perhaps I should make some public relations work here. It, it in includes a ch chair on uh, African development, as a series of junior fellowships. Um, we will also hopefully have summer schools linking LSC with African universities. And we also hope to have a program for sort of senior executives to, to spend time here for the three weeks courses. Anyway, there are a number of activities around, around Africa that uh, the program hopefully uh, will be able to, to get funds for. Uh, this first series is on corruption. Um, as you all know, um, when people talk about politics in, in Africa, the one sort of constant uh, has been corruption. And it arises at least for three reasons. One is a moral uh, revulsion to a process that uh, attacks the moral fiber of society. But there are also, perhaps in more recent years, arguments against corruption based on notions of good governance and assumptions that corruption is, has a negative impact on, on development. And there's whole literature suggesting that. And I think most of the uh, big funders, perhaps the two last arguments, the impact of, uh, of, of corruption on, 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 uh, on development and the, the impact of corruption on, on, on national institutions has taken precedence. A few years ago, I, was, uh, I attended a meeting of the African Studies Association. I think it was, in, it was in Nashville, Tennessee. And there, there was a, uh, a leading Africanist <coughs> who began his presentation of his uh, lecture with a, a quotation of an African proverb. He said it was actually a proverb from Cameroon. And the proverb that he, he, uh, he quoted from stated among that the goat eats where it is tethered, <coughs> or I think it translated translate that as the goat grazes where it is tied. And he used that proverb to argue that African societies accept corruption, that, that, there was no, uh, that corruption was not simply an elite uh, phenomenon, <coughs> but, that, but, but uh, rather it, has, it was a mode of social and political behavior which was widely shared in the, in the, in the, in the continent. And, and, and that that proverb was, you know, he used that proverb to clinch his argument, that that proverb sanctions corruption by saying, every bureaucrat has a right to eat around the desk to which he or she is tied to. At the end of the lecture, towards the end, actually, after the questioning period, towards the end of the lecture, there was a lady from Cameroon who stood up and said and thanked him for using an African proverb, proverb to make his point. But she requested him that next time he should read the entire proverb. Because the proverb says, a goat grazes where it is tied, and that is where the serpent gets it. <laughs> Suggesting, I think, that in fact, African society has, very, has strong counter 
availing at least moral arguments against corruption. And that um, it was therefore important when you study corruption in Africa to understand both the corrupt and those who resist corruption. We have brought with us here one of the serpents that gets the goat, <laughs> that, gra that grazes around the, around the desk which is tied. And um, we were expecting three speakers. And uh, we, have, we have had one, and as, uh, it, as you it will turn out, it's more than, more than sufficient. The other two didn't turn up because one uh, decided to run for elections in Nigeria. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was very prominent uh, in the fight against corruption. And it is a measure, I think, of the, of the, of the respect that people who fight corruption enjoy that he has, uh, he saw at least some of the political parties urged him to run as a candidate, which I think once again proves that there is, in fact, the serpent that um, gets the goat. That it is, it is not morally, uh, people are not morally indifferent to those who fight against, against corruption. The second one, who was supposed to turn up, uh, the other side of the African story, his house. Uh, he was attacked. Was, his house was robbed on the 4th of October. And, and a number of things were taken from his house, including his car. The following day, the car was returned to him. Uh, and the, all the objects stolen were returned to him, except his computer, which was kept for four days, and then returned to him with three files uh, and three chapters of a book he was working on, on the police in Senegal, deleted. Well, at least missing. <laughs> Uh, he suspects it was foul play by the police, but you know, he has no evidence, he says. Anyway, as a result of that, he couldn't, there were problems with getting visa, it was delayed, and it was just, he, he couldn't make it. So we have two, anyway, two polar sides of the story. One, where one actually might engage politically with the system, another one lost his, uh, lost his file. Uh, our main speaker today is John Kithongo. He's a former journalist. Uh, on, on management, uh, management consultant, and, and for, one, for a while he was actually a permanent secretary in charge of governance and ethics in Kenya, and is a founding member of the Transparency International in Kenya. He's known mainly for one of, well, one of his legendary uh, stories was involved in exposing a major uh, corruption scandal in Kenya, uh, which ended him. I just saw it from the, from the internet, the Kenya's anti-corruption czar. Now, uh, He's also very active in, the, in a major process, I think, in, in, in understanding corruption, that is the constitutional reforms in Kenya. And uh, so he will talk about both sides of the story, the corruption and some of the institutional uh, reforms that are being made to address corruption, to address the, the, some of the ills of, of, the, of the country. And for those who want to know more about the trials and tribulations of, of John, there is a, a good read by Michel Rong, which is a book, it's called It's Our Time to, to Eat the Story of a Kenyan Whistleblower. I don't know whether the publisher has brought any copies today, but you know, you can get that. So ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I bring to you uh, John and thank you. Thank you very, thank you very much, Prof. Um, I would like to start by 
thanking the London School of Economics for making it possible for me to be here today, uh, to Kate Maga for uh, really facilitating uh, this, this visit, and Professor Tandika really for the work that you've done and you're famous for in terms of the African Academy uh, for facilitating this uh, lecture series. Asante Sana for bringing some of us out uh, here to be able to, to say a few things. Um, I was a bit intimidated uh, when I heard that my two colleagues uh, were, 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 had dropped out and I was uh, uh, politely told that I had to extend my, uh, my presentation by 20 minutes. <laughs> 20 minutes. <coughs> so I shall, I, shall, uh, I shall try and write to the occasion. I, I think I know both the two previous, uh, two, two other gentlemen who I was to speak with, uh, Mr. Nuhuri Badu, uh, who is now standing for president of Nigeria. Do, uh, and uh, my colleague from, from Senegal as well, where there appears to have been some incompetence on the part of the police force on that side. Um, partly because I, I'm not used to speaking for so long, uh, I'm going to give, um, I won't call it a lecture because I'm not a lecturer. Uh, I'll give a story. Um, there has 11, 11 points that I would, I would like to make. First of all, is just to talk a little bit about my own personal experience in the fight against corruption. Secondly, I would like to say a bit about what, and what the fight against corruption looks like when you're winning in Africa. Because it's possible to win, and those moments have been there. And then I'd also like to talk about the unspoken pacts of patronage that often lay waste to even the very best of anti-corruption plans that may be had. Then I'll answer this question that is asked uh, about the goat uh, by some people who say, is this the African way? You, know, you, you hear it especially from business uh, so-called experts analysts uh, with some of uh, uh, the consultancy firms and the like say this is African way you know corruption a bit of corruption a bit of bribery here kickback here and there this is the, this is this is how it is in Africa so I'll ask about that then I'll talk a bit about Kenya about the current uh, overarching realities in Kenya that are going to define um, basically Kenya's next five years, regardless of whatever happens. Um, then <coughs> seventh, sixth, talk about the inequalities um, that are part of that. Seven, I'll touch a, touch a bit, perhaps, on what I call the international delusions about Kenya. Um, then on the politics of identity and economic growth and how they're intertwined in a country like Kenya and in many African countries. The ninth, I'll, um, I'll give you a anti-corruption Kenya 101, I call it, uh, which is uh, essentially the program that the Kenya government set about implementing to fight corruption beginning um, uh, early uh, 2002, but had started slightly earlier than that, and which is still 
um, theoretically in play now. Um, then uh, finally I'll talk about the Kenyan constitution and some of the scenarios that are being uh, considered in terms of how that will play out and how, the, how it features in, um, um, in the fight against corruption. Um, I was appointed to government in December 2002 as a permanent secretary in charge of governance and ethics in the office of the president. Within a couple of months, a couple of months later, I can't remember the exact date, I do have the date somewhere, a relative called me up and said, you know, John, we, we, we need to, to have breakfast, it's really to, to, to celebrate this uh, tremendous uh, honor that has been granted to you. And uh, you know, I was not going to refuse a breakfast. It was in a, a fancy hotel, <laughs> so uh, and this was by relative. So I decided to go for for the breakfast. <coughs> and halfway through the breakfast, an interesting thing happened: is that uh, he 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 reminded me. I knew that he was involved in a particular business. I, sh I won't go into the details of the business he was he was involved in with the government. He was a contractor with the government. And he reminded me that he was a contractor with the government and actually the government owed him a lot of money. And um, so by that time, the, the tenor of the breakfast had changed. Um, but essentially, he put it to me that, you know, John, if, if you made one or two telephone calls, my money, which is stuck unfairly, unjustly, uh, can become unstuck. Um, and you know, anyone who does a good thing deserves to be rewarded for doing a good thing. Uh, because this is a big injustice that has been done to me for a long time. And you would be bringing justice to me, my family, our family. And, uh, and you get uh, the equivalent now about, about uh, 500,000 US dollars. Um, I, I was a bit, I'll be honest, I was confused actually uh, because I wasn't really sure I had heard what, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't very clear what this fellow was saying uh, because the way it was put, he said, uh, you know, uh, you, you'll get 10% of what is owed to me um, as because of that, this essential help that, that, that you need. Um, when, I, when, I, when I did not respond uh, when I looked a bit confused, um, is, I think he became confused as well, <laughs> um, and pulled a gold Schaefer pen out of his own his own gold Schaefer pen out of his pocket. He said, "And John, this is for you. Just take this pen." So I, I took this pen, <laughs> uh, and I went into my office. And one of the, it, I think it was one of the first gift registers in the Kenya government. Where I opened a, a gift register. And I registered uh, the gold Schaefer pen uh, in um, in the gift register. I still don't know where the pen is, <laughs> but for me, this was the first experience of of um, of the way corruption comes at you when you are in high public office. It's not um, in the dramatic, rough way that one gets when you're talking about extractive industries. It's a soft, gentle. Uh, 
easy uh, way. I found myself in a situation where I was working for the president, in whom I, uh, I trusted, I had trust and faith, and we had agreed, and I had told him that the success in the fight against corruption was very much dependent on, on what he did, rather than all the laws and institutions, that, the laws that we passed and the, and the institutions that we created. Um, however, um, my faith, I came to discover, was misplaced. I'm still a believer that in most African countries, especially when you have a concentration of power in the presidency, um, high-level, serious grand corruption emanates from the presidency. Nowhere else. The people can, can lie to you that it is the pre president has bad advisors. It's a very popular um, thing, and I'm hearing it with regard to Afghanistan and other things. It's, it's, I, I don't believe that. Uh, it is not true. Um, still, um, that said, I'll give you a bit about uh, what corruption looks like when you're succeeding the fight against uh, corruption. What the fight against what anti-corruption looks like when you, when you're succeeding. One of the actions taken by the gentleman who is currently our prime minister, uh, when he was at the time minister of roads and public works in 2003-2004 was to demolish um, illegally built houses that had been built on road reserves. Uh, Kenya is the, is the conduit through which um, traffic and goods and trade go into Kenya, into Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Eastern Congo, um, uh, all go through Kenya. So, you know, we, we, we've had this bottleneck for a long time, which has been very unfair of us, where we have huge tankers and, and lorries in the middle of uh, Nairobi behind, uh, we, behind <coughs> vehicles that are taking children to school and people who are going to work, and it's a petrol tanker taking fuel to Uganda. So we had a program of building by, bypasses across, across uh, Nairobi so that this traffic didn't mix with our domestic traffic. That meant that we had to clear a lot of illegally built um, properties. A lot of the land that had been given out corruptly, a lot of it by the previous administrations, um, had been built on. Uh, people had, in some places, built beautiful mansions on, on this land, which made it impossible for the government to build uh, the, the bypasses necessary for us to have a truly regional road network. And so the decision was taken that we were going to demolish this, these properties. And we, there was a discussion as to how this was going to happen. And it was decided to start um, Let's start in the richest part of Nairobi by demolishing uh, an, an illegally constructed house, a house which had been constructed on a road reserve. And we went there with the, the, the led, led by the minister. And there was media, there was ex some excitement about it, obviously. The bulldozer knocking down somebody's beautiful mansion is, 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 is good media. 
Um, but then we also knew we had to, in the afternoon, go to one of the poor slums in Nairobi, which had grown up on a road reserve. And so we had some policemen with us, a platoon of policemen to assist us. Um, just in case things got a bit ugly um, on that side of, um, of town. Uh, in the upper side of town, the rich rushed to lawyers. Downtown, we were concerned that they would resort to more direct measures against us. Um, when we got there, and this for me was, remains one of the most moving moments I've had in my entire time in, in government. We got there, um, the big slum uh, off one of the main highways going to a, a place called Thika in Nairobi, uh, in, in, in just in central province next to Nairobi, now Thika County. We no longer have provinces in Kenya now. Um, and what was impressive is that we didn't need the policemen. We found that the poor were taking down their own houses. You know, this is what they were basically tearing them down. Um, and so we stopped, and you know, we were a bit confused. Um, and the people told us, we have heard what you have done up there to the rich people up there in Kitisul, that you've knocked down houses there. Us, we will take down the, this, let us finish today, we will take down the houses, you build the road. We know what you're doing. This is development. You're doing good work. And this for me was a very moving moment. So we, we, we didn't actually need the policemen uh, here. And for me, that is anti-corruption at, uh, at its very, very uh, best. I'll give you another uh, anecdote um, later, but, or, or maybe now. And this, uh, this spirit that Kenyans were imbued with lasted really until around August, July, August 2003. For, for a period in, two, in 2003, after the election of the new government, after the removal of uh, the former gov the government of former President Daniel Arab Moy, Kenyans were euphoric. Um, Gallup judged us to be the world's most optimistic people in March of 2003. Uh, a poll of 65,000 people. No one was more optimistic about the future than Kenyans. We remain, I think, an optimistic people. Uh, but that was quite uh, special. One of our early problems was that we had ordinary people arresting policemen across the country. Um, and obviously, senior policemen were at a loss as to what to do. Because you have... Uh, a provincial police officer call him to say, I don't know, that's a, we have people here have brought me my, my men and they have tied them up. What do I do? Um, and that's what, that's what anti-corruption is, is supposed to look like when it's actually working. When ordinary people take it upon themselves to, to deal with it. However, that uh, requires a, a, a level of trust and an amount of faith, which if dashed, means they retreat very quickly. But this was something that was happening, it was being reported in the media, it was happening across the country um, in the early months of 2003. <coughs> and um, by, by the end of that year, it wasn't happening anymore. Uh, 
there are those who would argue that corruption is the African way. I would disagree. In fact, in African culture, crimes against property were often, often caused the most harsh repercussions. I don't know, Professor, whether it's the same in, in Malawi, but if you are on a journey and you are walking through somebody's farm, a long journey, you could stop. And if you are hungry, you could take bananas or whatever and eat them right there and then keep on moving. And that's a culture, and I don't know whether it's the same in Malawi, but in many communities in Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, and, and uh, South, uh, it's the same. So long as you don't carry, you don't take away the food, so long as you're just dealing with your immediate hunger because you're on a journey, no one can stop you. However, if you stole a cow, uh, the punishment was almost more severe than if you got into a fight with somebody and broke the arm. Uh, the punishment for crimes against, against property were always extremely severe. So I've always been very, um, uh, I've always opposed this idea that uh, there is uh, some cultural uh, proclivity amongst Africans towards corruption that is there and cannot be done. I, I say it's rather the opposite. Um, uh, we had, during the colonial period, a time when uh, the colonial administration gave a lot of power to chiefs, if you can call them that. In a country like Kenya, we never, in large parts of Kenya, we never had chiefs. We, you know, uh, communities were managed by groups of elders, but some of them were created into chiefs, those who, are, who showed the most loyalty, and um, they were given the, the power to, to prosecute the mandate of the colonial government. And this gave them the power, the power to, to do a, a range of things, really to abuse their authority, uh, to, to accumulate land, livestock, uh, to steal people's wives and daughters. This was something that was uh, very, very common in parts of Kenya uh, during the colonial period. So impunity was something that goes back uh, some way as an instrument of governance at the local level, combined with the use of disproportionate levels of violence, that when there is a when somebody turns against the state um, or, or does something that is against the interests of the state, the violence that is meted out is always disproportionate. Uh, you still see it in many parts of Africa. The police coming down not only on ordinary people uh, with tremendous ferocity. You know, uh, it's a demonstration. Um, Ten people killed. We had uh, the recent one in, I think, in Niger, where it was, it, it was really, or Guinea, I think, where it was um, hundreds of people killed, a lot of people raped, uh, and it's part of the reason we, uh, in many parts of Africa, except South Africa, uh, you don't have million man march. You don't have these peaceful. You know, I, I, I love watching these demonstrations you see in other in Asia and other places of people holding candles. 
uh, 10,000 people with candles, uh, 1,000 people walking peacefully somewhere. That doesn't happen very often in many African countries because the, the response is immediate, extreme, and, and disproportionate. That's uh, my muddled way of giving a bit of history uh, about Kenya and corruption and also a bit about myself and my attitude towards corruption. So I don't believe, I, I don't believe that corruption is intrinsically an African uh, issue. Um, it's something that uh, we assumed and became experts at. Um, but uh, given the opportunity, Africans are uh, willing to use all their energy to, to fight against it. Let me talk about what's happening, the current realities in, in a place like Kenya now, and what I would argue caused someone like me, or me, to make the choices that I made. Um, I think, Professor, if, if I had stayed in government, I, would be, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I would be a rich man. I would not uh, really, I would not have had to come by the tube, really, <laughs> <laughs> to London School of Economics to, to talk. I would be, um, but I think there are more important things happening in, in Kenya and across Africa. And I think the most important thing that's happening in uh, in Kenya, and I think across the continent of Africa, is that we're in the middle of a, of a national crisis, of, of a youth bulge that is unprecedented in our history. 80% of Kenyans are below the age of 34. Almost 50% are below the age of 20. What should be the engine that will drive us economically and politically into real uh, powers in, the, in this century. Currently, the posture is that of a crisis. And the majority of this um, bulge, we have a population of about 40 million, and so I'm talking about 80% of that, and the population is growing at about a million a year. Um, in 1986, our formal sector employed 80% of the workforce. The informal sector, 20%. By 2006, just 20 years, the formal sector employed about 21%, and the informal sector, 80%. And by informal sector, I include, you know, when you're driving through the streets, you see young people who are selling you um, trinkets and other things made in China uh, that they have managed to, to get. That's the informal sector. The informal sector employs more people than the formal sector and the agricultural sector combined. And if you look at all the, the, the literature on Kenya, they'll talk of, it talks of Kenya as an agricultural country. But the informal sector, this sector where people are working on the verges of legality, really, on, on the margins of legality, employs 80% and the majority of them are young. This is, this is the crisis that we face and that we've got to deal with 
constructively or begin to deal with constructively within the next 14 to 18 months uh, as we come up to the next elections uh, in Kenya. We have to begin dealing with this. Otherwise, um, as I discussed with some, some uh, business people two weeks ago, um, they're going to burn us out of our range of us. Because these youth that we're talking about are culturally globalized in their expectations and aspirations. They're globalized. It doesn't matter where they are, whichever, whichever part of Kenya they are, they have mobile phones, they listen to radio, FM stations, uh, TV, um, uh, you know, all the rappers that you know, they know. <coughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's how immediate it is. Um, all these viral uh, phenomena in social networking, they're tapping into. Um, and so um, they're globalized in a way that is unprecedented uh, in, Kenyan, in Kenyan history. They're, when these expectations and aspirations of theirs are dashed, their problems or their challenges fall into three categories, which are easily politicized by elements of the elite that I described before, and also easily militarized, turned into violent things that caused the kind of explosion that you saw in Kenya in 2007, 2008. And there are three categories of, of, of issues that are confronting Kenya today. One is what I call the identity issues, the politics of identity. And under this, we have three, uh, you can disaggregate this into three categories. Number one is ethnic, tribal. Number two, religious. That's becoming more and more uh, a bigger issue, especially as um, the war against terror and counterterrorism becomes uh, a problem that we are sharing with, um, uh, you know, co or collaborating with the West in dealing with. It's becoming an issue, and also clan politics. Uh, the second bucket of issues are to do with governance, and that that has a whole range of uh, issues that you can put in that particular bucket. But I'll put two as, as challenges that are important uh, and are going to be pressing over the coming 14 to 18 months in Kenya. The first one is inequality, not poverty, inequality. I believe poverty is, I, I put in a different, you know, poverty and inequality are different, but inequality, especially, especially when it is accompanied by conspicuous consumption on the part of those who are uh, um, the beneficiaries of corruption. So inequality and corruption are the two primary issues with regard to governance that we, that we face and have to deal with. And then finally, <coughs> we have a bucket of issues that are under what I call livelihood issues. Uh, employment, water, health, education, and security. I spent a year traveling the country from the end of 2008 uh, until um, roughly the end of 2009, and that's been, been ongoing ever since as well, uh, where I spent time living in the villages and getting a sense of what people were thinking and feeling. And uh, what struck me was um, that the most pressing issues amongst, especially the youth, aren't water, are not, not, not education. Uh, the most pressing issue is security, unemployment. So, uh, those are the two most pressing uh, issues. Just give you some of the statistics 
um, that um, that put into contrast uh, some of these inequalities that have become very real for this for these uh, for the youth in Kenya, and makes this a time bomb that we are sitting on that we have to manage. Kenya between 2003 and 2007 was growing at 5.5% average. The stock exchange grew by 400% in that time. Um, we had free primary education introduced. 1.3 million children went to primary school for the first time who had never been to primary school. By 2006, the number of children in primary school had doubled from what they were just three years before. So you had a massive infrastructure development program. So the sense in which, in terms of the hardware, the government was getting it right, yet something was wrong. The majority of this 5.5% economic growth accrued to the top 25% of the population in economic terms. Between 1998 and 2002, middle-income residents of Nairobi endured an inflation rate of 28% which rose to 39% between 2003 and 2007. Over the same period, 1998 and 2002, low-income residents of Nairobi endured an inflation rate of 23%. However, between 2003 and 2007, it rose to over 70%. It's driven by global factors. It's food in particular, the price of food in particular was, was important, fuel and all that. And this remains the reality that people are living. This snapshot is repli was replicated across the country and is stratified by region and, eth and ethnicity in a manner that gives it and still gives it a political potency, potency. What corruption means in this context changes dramatically and acquires a political currency that can be used to devastating effect around <coughs> national political events and processes. Five, let me give six uh, important issues about the youth in Kenya that, and I think this is true in many other African countries. Um, number one, partly as a result of the fall of the Berlin Wall at the end of the 1980s, uh, beginning of the 1990s, the, uh, the reintroduction of political pluralism, it saw a proliferation of foreign funded non governmental organizations. Uh, the, the freeing up of the media, I mean, the media boom uh, across Africa, especially FM radio stations. Now, this is uh, uh, in Kenya, I think the number went up in the late, late 1980s from around three or four uh, to several hundred right now in terms of FM radio stations. Um, this has been hugely empower empowering. At the same time, it was accompanied by civic education programs that were supported by the government around multi-party elections in 1992, 97, and 2002. The irony of this is that it created such a huge empowerment that the state, which was not itself reforming, was unable to meet the expectations it was partly creating. Anti-social expressions of this empowerment are everywhere driven by, the, by, by inequality. Outwardly, they're exhibited by criminality. Um, and in, inwardly, where, where this 
this antisocial behavior on the, on the part of youth consumes people, it's through um, the spread of uh, social maladies such as drugs, alcohol consumption, prostitution, become huge problems. And this has become um, a major problem uh, in uh, certain parts of uh, Kenya. The other unfortunate thing is that violence is one of the most empowering thing to the, to the youth. Uh, the post-election violence of 2007-2008 was equivalent to one million youth empowerment workshops. Because I was meeting youth who could set up a roadblock with their machetes and stop trade with Uganda. Stop trade with Rwanda by setting a lighter tanker on the road. And I talk to them and they say, no, you know, we've, we, you know there's somebody, remember this is part of this 80%. 80% of the, uh, 80% of the population, 80% of whom are in the quote unquote informal sector. You know, um, and informal means basically you are, you're hustling uh, mainly to survive. Um, and then you find yourself in a situation where the elections fail and you can actually have a roadblock where you can do what you want, uh, you can take what you, what you want. And um, it was hugely empowering uh, for some of the youth. And you talk to them, they say, you know, we are the ones who put these ministers in, their, in the seats in which they are sitting today with the blood on our, on our machetes. So it was empower, empowering in a very uh, uh, profound but negative way. Secondly, employment is a national, uh, is a national crisis, youth, and, youth unemployment. Thirdly, it's been accompanied by a, an informalization of, of our politics um, because the post-election violence in Kenya had one major effect, which, which was to delegitimize the state very dramatically. Because for a short while there, the state lost control over sections of the country, entire sections of the country. It's the security forces simply couldn't manage uh, the violence, the looting, the carnage that was taking place. In the end, it took, um, in fact, the intervention of the international community um, through the African Union uh, and other international friends, uh, Kofi Annan, former Secretary General of the United Nations, and a whole host of other uh, foreign pressure to bring our belligerents together to forge a national accord that led to the coalition government that exists in Kenya um, today. And um, that, delegit that delegitimization has had a, a major effect on even the types of corruption that we see uh, in Kenya. And one of the um, one of most one of the most striking um, two of the most striking developments have been number one uh, the increasing influence of drugs and drug money in in the political sphere, but you know, and you're talking the political sphere, it's also a major social problem now. And number three, number two, um, 
informal youth gangs have great currency now. You know, they have tremendous currency. I remember spending time in the flavelas in Brazil, in, in Rio de Janeiro and, and Sao Paulo, and I was struck how up in the flavelas during the day, it was ruled by the gangs. And you know, if, you, if it was one gang, you couldn't wear a blue shirt. If it was another gang, you couldn't wear a red shirt. They ran it. And the military police would come in every once in a while, kill several young people, but this was ruled by them. And that's the process that we are also seeing in Kenya. The other important issue to keep in mind um, is that we often think of Kenya and many other African countries as, as, as rural, agricultural. Uh, I, I'm increasingly arguing against that. Uh, our first president had a saying, Rudy Mashambani, go back to the land. President Kenyatta he used to tell people, go back to the land, till the soil, and we'll prosper. Um, Africa is one of the, if not the world's most rapidly urbanizing continent. We have some of the world's most rapidly growing cities, places like Lagos and others, but Africa is urbanizing rapidly. Even where the urbanization isn't physical, people are in a uh, are urbanizing in terms of aspirations and expectations. Young people don't dream of owning one acre of land, two cows, wife, and two and a half children. <laughs> Not anymore. They want the city. They want to go to the city. Uh, it's where the lights, where where the lights are, and where the energy is, and where the vibrancy is. And that's the truth, regardless whether you are living in the urban areas or the rural areas. So urbanization is uh, a physical and, an, and also an existential reality. Um, that said, and this is something that is important about Kenya, um, is that despite all the difficulties that we've had, the last referendum on the Constitution showed that Kenyans have a continued faith in democratic institutions, in, well, in democratic processes. People turned out in, in record numbers to vote yes for the, for the new constitution. And they had registered in record numbers to participate in that democratic process. I think a lot of Kenya's hope lies in that, uh, in that uh, confidence. Um, I'll jump through uh, a couple of sections because I have a feeling they'll come up when questions are being asked and go to, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I've, I've, I've left out. I've left out um, the section on, um, on the international community and uh, its role in anti-corruption. I have a feeling that question may come from this audience. Uh, I'll, I'll jump to, uh, to anti-corruption in Kenya 101. And, and rush through that. Um, uh, the anti-corruption strategies that were implemented by African governments starting from the mid-1990s um, had seven key elements. And uh, they're all similar because they all came after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the reintroduction of multi-party politics, and then 
IMF conditionalities on governance. And really, it was a combination of Transparency International and the World Bank, uh, when Mr. Jim Wolfenson, for the first time in the history of the World Bank, used the big C word. I think World Bank presidents never ever mentioned corruption. Um, it was called leakages. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. When you hear of a, a program leakage uh, or a, a program slippage, um, then it is, means money has disappeared. Um, no one is willing to say somebody has stolen it. Um, but I think uh, it, it is a, an important uh, moment when uh, there was an important you know, uh, convergence when you had the creation of Transparency International in 1993, at the same time the leadership of Mr. Wolfenson at the World Bank and corruption jumped up to uh, the, near the top of the, of the global development agenda. And the anti-corruption uh, programs all had seven elements. I've, some of you may have heard me go through this before. The first, the first one, and by the way, um, I, I always need to, to say this uh, about this strategy. The first real anti-corruption survey done in Africa was done by the former Prime Minister of Tanzania, Justice, Justice Joseph Sindia Warioba, in the mid-1990s. And he was, order, he was asked by the President to go around Tanzania and ask Tanzanians about corruption and come back with recommendations. And he went around the country, uh, produced the Warioba report, which I still think is the seminal report on corruption in any African country. Um, and his recommendation is that if you want to fight corruption, you've got to get the entire population behind you. Corruption has to be bought, fought from the bottom when ordinary people believe that it is in their interests to fight corruption because it's the only way that they'll be able to live a productive life and be able to fulfill um, all their talents. Um, he, he was then invited for a World Bank spring meeting and, um, and there heard for the first time uh, some of what was in his report uh, read back to him. But here, I think, uh, uh, it had been turned upside down. And um, the first pillar of the fight against corruption became leadership. That if you want to fight corruption, the president, prime minister, must be the one to lead the fight against corruption, which makes sense. I believe that for a very long time, totally. That if you don't have you know, the president or the prime minister, uh, it doesn't work. Uh, I'm, I'm now a bit dubious about that, having my personal experience and what I've seen also other friends go through. I think it's a combination of both uh, that work. Secondly, you need to have legal reform. So a lot of countries, starting in 1997, uh, egged on by the IMF introducing uh, governance conditionalities in its, in its enhanced structural adjustment facility loans. It cut off lending to Kenya and Cameroon because of poor governance. And that was the beginning of the creation of anti-corruption agencies across Africa. Uh, Cameroon got off the hook quicker than Kenya. And uh, I'm not sure how or why, because in the, in the Corruption Perception Index, we are in the same sort of ballpark. But they have oil and we don't. <laughs> uh, um, but that's when it started. Um, and so um, anti-corruption legislation was passed and ethics-related legislation was passed, defining conflict, conflicts of interest, that kind of thing. 
Um, we also had a lot of institutional reform, and uh, a lot of it centered around uh, creating anti-corruption agencies um, across Africa, but also reforming the judiciary and other uh, governance institutions, the legislature, etc. The third uh, and important um, element, uh, I think I've mentioned legal for the, and I've mentioned legal reform and institutional reform. The other important uh, element in this was, was the international community and international cooperation. Um, getting the, talking, especially when you're talking about grand corruption, especially in, in countries that have extractive industries, oil, gold, etc. There is no grand, you know, there's no grand corruption that takes place um, that doesn't include members of the service sector in the developed world. You cannot steal $10 million from Kenya, Cameroon, Tanzania, Uganda, or any other country without the help of a lawyer, a banker, maybe around here. <laughs> um, and I'm serious about that. It's not possible. Uh, it's not, it's, you really, it's the architecture. The architecture of grand corruption uh, is usually perfected by the service sector in the West. Um, so the international community is important, and of course the, the passing of the United Nations Convention Against Corruption in 2003 was a major milestone, and um, we can talk about that later. Um, the other key element in, in the fight against uh, corruption was media and civil society, um, giving, the, giving space to media and civil society to, to mobilize public opinion against uh, corruption. Um, this has been a double-edged sword, but the media remains the primary mobilizer of public opinion against corruption. And a free media, therefore, is essential in, in fighting corruption. Uh, last but not least is um, is a private sector. The private sector must be involved in the fight against corruption. Private sector is usually a prim the, the primary party together with government in, in corruption in developing countries across Africa. However, one has to keep in mind, and I don't want to sound cynical here, that for the private sector, corruption is a tax. Um, for the pri you'll only hear the private sector complain about corruption if it becomes unpredictable or inconsistent. However, if the bribes are consistent and predictable, there's no complaint because it's a tax. Uh, they can plan it for it. Um, until not too long ago, in some countries like Germany, it was tax deductible um, as, a business, as a legitimate business expense. Um, and finally, it's transitional. The, the last element that in, in these anti-corruption strategies was transitional justice. How do we deal with past corruption? And this is where many of us got stuck. How do you begin fighting corruption? Maybe you are a new administration. You have inherited a police force that is riddled with corruption, a judiciary that is infected with it. All the institutions and all, all the equipment that you have been given is rusty with corruption. What do you do? Uh, and this is a this is very touchy area. I never I always get in trouble for saying this, but I think that uh, part of the mistake we made is that we we used um, uh, the language of human rights discourse to deal with economic crimes. 
and a kind of human rights fundamentalism infected the economic crimes discourse um, that you know we must deal with every every case of corruption and you know let's throw them all in let's investigate everything throw them all in jail you know uh, in in truth it's it's much more difficult to do that in the case of economic crimes than it is with human rights abuses human rights abuses people carry the scars on their backs on their minds in their hearts for generations um, the life expectancy of grand corruption is about 25 years. The more you steal, the shorter the, shel the shelf life. If you steal 10 million, in 25 years, it will have filtered away in the public imagination. Files will have gotten lost. Judges will have died. Um, prosecuting it will have become that much more difficult. If you've stolen $100 million, you're a member of parliament. With a billion dollars, you might be the president. So. Uh, Economic crimes are very different, uh, and one has to uh, use different uh, instruments. I've always argued that at some point you've, you've got to be ready uh, to bite the bullet and um, swallow the painful uh, pill of granting an amnesty uh, to some of those who have engaged in corruption, so long as it is accompanied by restitution, so they pay back by lustration so they can never serve in public office uh, ever again and there's transparency about it so the ordinary people know that this is happening um, otherwise um, uh, the best arena for the corrupt is the courts they love going to court um, their lawyers will always be better paid than the government's lawyers and prosecuting grand corruption uh, even here in the UK uh, in other mature democracies is difficult, especially grand corruption. It takes years and years of trying to accumulate evidence and, and uh, deal with the case. Um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll finish um, by talking a little bit about Kenya's current uh, constitution and the fight against corruption. Um, unfortunately, since, or fortunately, depending on how cynical one is, um, corruption is the glue that has held the coalition together since it was created in the beginning of 2008. Because uh, it created a level of inclusivity, it brought everyone to the table to be able to loot um, public funds without any part of the elite feeling excluded. Um, what has been different uh, is that um, this uh, frenzy has been taking place at a, uh, accompanied by economic growth, even though that took a knock after the violence of the last elections. Uh, it has been de decentralized um, and, and is inclusive by default as a, result, as a result of the coalition itself. But as a result, it is also chaotic. And it has the characteristics of a headless octopus because it seems to have many hands but no discernible head. As a result, we are witnessing the entrenchment of trends that include particularly pernicious forms of corruption that come with drugs, money laundering, money laundering and other form, forms of organized crime. Eventually, these forces capture elements of the judiciary, 
and by capture I mean bribing, intimidating, or killing, make their way into parliament, own chunks of the executive, cause havoc in the legislature, and in some arenas, there is no discernible entrance between them and the security services. Ironically, in this context, the private sector is fairly happy uh, after a while. They, 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 uh, I call it a, a corruption equilibrium, uh, where everyone knows what everyone is, uh, is doing. They, they whine about it at dinner parties, um, but they've realized this is the game um, that everyone's uh, playing. The, the big weakness um, in this uh, scenario and why it is not sustainable in the long run in a country like Kenya is because, thanks, be, thanks, you know, thank God, um, we don't have any extractive industry. This corruption is dependent on either you're stealing tax, tax dollars or aid money. Uh, and aid money is fungible. The more aid money you get, the more tax dollars you can steal. Um, about three, three or four weeks ago, it was announced that Kenya's attempts to, to find oil in a place north of Kenya and called Isiolo had failed. The Chinese government or Chinese companies had spent $34 million prospecting for oil there, and they failed. I, for one, celebrated that day. Um, <laughs> it, I, I don't think that we Kenyans are at all ready for, uh, for oil. I'll close with three scenarios with regard to the new constitution. Uh, and with this, I'd like to thank uh, my friend Ashisha of Kenya and of Oxford University. Uh, and who, who came up with these provocative scenarios and we've been bouncing them back off, off each other. As you know, Kenya recently passed a, a new constitution. Um, and uh, this has created for us a moment of hope that we have to capitalize on pretty quickly. Uh, here, you, one argues that you know, a constitution is creating a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Uh, but in Kenya, we are instead faced with multiple constitutional scenarios. Um, this may sound cynical, but the fact remains that the larger pressure for constitutional reform was a result of the post-election violence agreement on, the, on 4th of March 2008, which was overseen by the international community. Agenda four of this agreement was a donor-driven agenda, uh, was as much a donor-driven agenda as it was desired by Kenyans. So we had a, a convergence of interests. The Kenyans wanted a new constitution, but the people who really pushed and you know, tipped tip the edge were the international community said, who said, you must make sure this happens. This does not, I don't want, I don't want to um, underplay or negate the calls of, of many Kenyans who had suffered and died and been pushed into exile in the, in the struggle for a new constitution really since the end of the 1980s, the beginning of the 1990s. But when push came to shove at this last moment, it was the international community that said, this, this is something that you, you must do. Uh, our first scenario uh, is likely, in the short run, it's government of the people by the elite for the donors. <laughs> and this is um, delivered in the form of a new constitution, 
that creates a sense of euphoria amongst the people, which we have. We are genuinely, as Kenyans, excited about the new constitution. We believe that there's a new dawn, and I think that possibility does exist. We can lose it. Uh, and the political elite uh, buys time uh, and support from the donors, and it diffuses donor pressure for reform. The second phase of this scenario is a government of the political elite by the political elite for the donors. Uh, here we would envisage a political elite that will succeed in attracting immense donor, in, uh, donor funds in the name of constitutional reform and implementation, but use these funds to consolidate and redesign the emerging political dispensation to suit their needs. More donor funding and the fact that, Kenya is, that, that in Kenya aid is highly fungible will allow the political elite to use tax resources for purposes of political consolidation. During this phase, resources are used to capture the citizenry as the new political institutions are created to expand the number of political vacancies available. Half-hearted reforms, manipulation during the constitution of, a new, of the new judiciary, undermining the independence, and paper-based reforms create the mask of portraying pro progress towards democratic ideals when in reality new political, new, new political consolidation and design is taking place, funded by donors. The third phase of this is a government of the political elite by the political elite for the political elite. And here Kenyans and the donors discover yet again that the, poli that the political and governance system that has emerged doesn't really change the status, has the status quo significantly. And networks of corruption and patronage continue in this new form at all levels of the political dispensation. And in fact, new networks are created. Inequality and poverty continue to rise as ordinary citizens see a worsening of their daily lives. There's a second scenario, and I won't go over the first phase of it, which is the same, where as a new constitution, great excitement. Uh, the second phase, again, is the same, is a government of the elite, by the elite, for the donors, where uh, these resources are used to consolidate. But phase three of this second scenario sees um, a situation where the, 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 the elite is able to hoodwink Kenyans only for a short time that reforms are taking place. But as time passes, Kenyans become more, become, get more agitated for, by the lack of reform and the lack of tangible change in their lives as, as citizens as poverty and inequality continue to rise. And here, we would envisage yet another rise and surge in identity politics being played out in the form of clan, ethnicity, and religion. The political elite manipulate the people to consolidate their power. This would be accompanied by pockets of violence in different parts of Kenya. And here I'm talking about this happening before, in the next, before the end of 2012. And so, so, so we'd expect surges of, of violence to maintain political dynasties and order to divert the attention of Kenyans from the nature of inequality created by the political systems. There's a final scenario which I think is the one uh, that I would like to think is going to be the case. It's an ideal one, but it's a long-run one. Um, where we've a new constitution is uh, de delivered. Uh, the excitement that we are enjoying is there. But, and this is most important, over the next 
eight months, and, and I mean literally eight months from a month ago. Uh, we have a government of the people by a strong independent judiciary for the people. To hold the government to account to the new constitution, and in particular the Bill of Rights, to gain faith in the strength of the new constitutions, Kenyans hope and will rely on a renewed independent and, in, and, in, and impartial judiciary to abdicate, to adjudicate on its behalf. In this scenario, we envisage a cleanup of the judiciary that manages to insulate itself from political influence and leads to a more autonomous <laughs> judiciary and will not make rulings in favor of the political exec executive. We envisage Kenyans being able to access and utilize judiciary to challenge the political elite from manipulation, and we expect the judiciary to deliver verdicts that demonstrate the primacy of the new constitution. And here we would witness the first significant corruption-related prosecutions, and we would applaud the removal of off from office of those who incite hatred or abuse of office. And we would witness a gradual change in the culture of politicians who have demonstrated uh, to, to to we witness a gradual change in the culture of politicians who have, who have to demonstrate their accountability to the Kenyan citizenry. In the absence of an independent judiciary, no Kenyan will have faith in holding the political elite accountable in the new constitution. Um, so we have three pieces of legislation that are coming up. I think are going to be before parliament in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, one is the Judicial Service Commission. One is a piece of legislation on the vetting of judges. Another one is on the, on the creation of a, of a committee to implement the Constitution. How those are managed is going to have a big impact on the kind of Kenya we're going to have. Uh, our vigilance and the vigilance of all of, Kenyans, of all of Kenya's friends is very critical at this time. If we miss this boat, then we face very choppy waters ahead. Otherwise, like a typical Kenyan, I am um, optimistic uh, about the future. We refuse to be pessimistic as Kenyans, partly because we believe in Ke Kenyan exceptionalism. We were very upset when, after the 2007-2008 election, uh, election violence, fellow Africans from Somalia, Nigeria, Uganda, would come up to us and say, we are very sorry what happened to you people. <laughs> and that bugged us. <laughs> that really, really bothered us across, across ethnic lines. And I would like to think that it's that kind of spirit that will carry Kenya through. Thank you very much. Uh, we have uh, 18 minutes for questions and, and comments, and please make the questions very brief, and um, uh, we just don't have the time. Yes, please. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm worried about the serpent. Um, I'm not so worried about the goats. Um, I think the goats will always be there, and I don't think they're only going to be grazing on the Serengeti. Imagine you might find them on the Champs-Élysées as well as on the Washington Mall. But I am more worried about the serpent, and I wonder whether the serpent's in fact strong enough, at least in Africa. And I wanted to push you on the, something you hinted at, which is that possibly the institutions of accountability that exist in Africa today 
Um, you mentioned some of them, you yourself, an example of one of them, anti-corruption SARS. Maybe these aren't effective in an African context. In other words, it's not that corruption is unique to Africa. It's that the solution, which is to create what well, ultimately are Eurocentric and Western institutions of accountability, may not work. And that may be tied to the human rights fundamentalism and to the liberal fundamentalism that you hinted at. Maybe we need more indigenous, more African modes of accountability. Take more questions? Yes, please. Yes, Um, okay, thank you very much. Um, there are certain issues that I'd like to raise, and this is specifically because I am Kenyan, and there are a lot of these issues that have um, come up. However, for, to begin with, uh, I was very interested in the issue of African whistleblowers, and I take it as a case scenario of where uh, there was grand corruption that was happening. However, many of these whistleblowers tend to take off from Africa. And uh, the effect is that uh, they get prime jobs in different organizations, for example, that uh, in effect tend to fight corruption. Then the second issue is the issue of the new constitution. The new constitution provides institutions and uh, frameworks within which the system is to change. What is your comment on the, f uh, on the recent happenings that have been there in Kenya? One, the exit of... Uh, the former anti-corruption chief and the entrance of the current anti-corruption chief is Professor Pielo Lumumba and the work that he's doing because currently uh, in, the, in the last uh, month or so we have seen um, several min one minister has been relieved of his duties and the mayor of Nairobi has been arrested what is your comment on such some of this because you've painted a very grim picture of um, Kenya which I do not agree with in most of it but um, I'd like to hear your reflections on what is currently happening in the Kenya Anti-Corruption Commission. Thank you. Any questions? Yes. yes. Thanks. Regarding the uh, two issues, one has well, to I'm do with the... Go ahead, but before Sorry. you get micro, you can go ahead and shoot even the next one. Yeah, you can get, yeah, you can go ahead. Hmm? Yeah. Yes. Can you give that the radio? The first one has to do, thank you with the uh, study, I'm, I'm actually uh, studying the, the issue of rent-seeking and rents and corruption, so I'm very interested in this. Um, there are uh, political uses and, uh, of the term, so people, uh, I'm from Argentina, and usually political parties in the country abuse and use the term in order to gain political momentum, and then they end up you know, copying their opponents. So I was wondering first about this uh, question. Secondly, you mentioned uh, very emphasis, uh, emphatically the problem of the private sector regarding the dynamics of uh, rent uh, flows in, in the country. I was wondering what are the institutional transformations that uh, can be obstacleized or uh, created because of these rents and if there is any measurement to describe this and if not, uh, whether I, I would like to discuss this. <laughs> Thank you. Just one more question up here. Thank you. Hi. Um, in England, we have a law that makes it illegal to dismiss someone um, for whistleblowing in their employment. And um, so if you go to the newspapers, provide you've raised the issue internally with your employer first, if they subsequently dismiss you, then they'll have to pay you damages and so forth. 
Do you have a law like that in Kenya? If you do, has it been effective? If you don't, do you think it could be? Okay, yeah. Yeah, um, thanks. I think with regard to um, uh, the serpents and were they the right ones, um, you know, we've, we've had the experience on the economic front in the 1980s of adopting uh, economic reforms that perhaps if we, if we had had time to think about them ourselves more clearly, perhaps we would not have implemented them in the way that they were implemented. I'm talking about the structural adjustment programs on the economic front. With regard to governance and anti-corruption, I would say the same thing. If we had thought it through more clearly, perhaps we wouldn't have gone. I've always, I've always found the word czar very uncomfortable because the, the czar uh, ended very, very badly. <laughs> and, um, but um, but we've, we've taken this, it's like a multi-purpose antibiotic approach to some of these issues. And, um, and when we think about the more, for me, it, when I sat back and reflected, um, I, I, I was struck that someone like Joseph Oryoba had, had, in the early 90s, uh, said that you cannot fight this thing using foreign uh, ideas. You've got to uh, mobilize uh, the people to, to fight corruption. And uh, so I would agree with you. Um, I, I am, I'll be very honest, partly responsible. We, you know, we bought into it. So, you know, if we, if we adopt these series of measures, we'll be able to deal with it. Hasn't really worked. I think you need a combination of both, but it must be, you must come, you know, come up with your own uh, uh, local solutions, African solutions to, to dealing with corruption. They may not be neat. They may not be popular um, because they may involve uh, coming to accommodations that are, uh, un that are make people uncomfortable. Um, with regard to the gentleman, my, my colleague from Kenya, who asked about whistleblowers leaving Africa, yes, that has uh, happened. I, I remember sitting in Nigeria with my colleague who uh, sitting in Oxford with my colleague Nuhu, who was supposed to be with us here today and uh, thinking about the time when we would both be back in Kenya and you know for me being back in Kenya for the last two years has been very very um, uh, interesting and I spent I spent a year traveling around the country um, I would be very careful before getting overexcited by the recent developments with regard to the dismissal of ministers and uh, that doesn't mean that I don't have confidence in uh, the leadership of the Kenya Anti-Corruption Commission. Kenya Anti-Corruption Commission is trying to fight a valiant fight under difficult circumstances, but I'll be very, very careful. Uh, I would say wait uh, and see uh, where this, this goes. It is early days yet uh, before we can uh, start uh, blowing a horn and saying that uh, we, have, we have won uh, even a skirmish uh, in, 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 this, in this battle. Um, I think it may, I think uh, the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index was due to come out today. Um, it would be interesting to see where Kenya is ranked and, uh, and see whether um, uh, you feel my, 
my my pessimism is in regard to corruption is is warranted or not. I'll be uh, I'll buy you a task of beer if Kenya has 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 gone up in that in that ranking. Um, secondly, with regard to the private sector, uh, I think the change is taking place um, uh, globally that we haven't taken advantage of um, to draw in the private sector in a manner that uh, creates an incentive structure for them uh, to um, uh, to seek for a, a more transparent business environment. Um, and uh, I think uh, the, disc the what the American government is doing with regard to offshore uh, the kind of energy and push that's coming out of the U.S. with regard to the regulation of offshore uh, money centers, I think, is extremely important. I think it's important that in the U.K. the anti-corruption legislation has been passed, um, and I think this combination uh, is key. Still, um, I think that substantially more resources need to be put here in the West to supporting mutual legal assistance uh, requests that come from third world countries. Because sometimes uh, mutual legal assistance requests can take a long time to be processed. And uh, as I said, uh, unlike human rights abuses, economic crimes go stale. Um, you know, after five years, circumstances have changed fairly uh, dramatically. Um, with regard to um, whistleblowing, um, this is something that is uh, I believe anticipated by the new uh, constitution. Um, I know there's a witness protection legislation uh, in place, and it's still under discussion. Um, this, you know, these are slightly, uh, it's being tested in Kenya's case because of the International Criminal Court, which is interested in Kenya because of the post-election violence. And, um, and there's been discussion, what do you do with the witnesses? In the African context, uh, witness protection does not mean the same thing as it means here in the West. Because if you stand up as a witness in a corruption case or a, or a case where you're accusing somebody of, of, of some egregious human rights abuse, genocide, or crimes against humanity, uh, you, you, don't have, you don't only have to pull that person out into some sort of witness protection uh, program, them and perhaps the immediate family. Sometimes you're pulling out an entire clan um, I don't know, Professor, whether it could be the same in, in Malawi, uh, because retribution uh, comes to uh, the whole group. Uh, but this is, these are still some of the challenges that we are uh, we are contemplating now. Mm. Good. We 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 only have time for two questions. I'll take one. Yeah, back there. There are two of you, one of the whoever gets it first. <laughs> and then I'll come down here. If corruption has a Michael Jackson, it would probably be um, Sonny Abacha or um, Mobutu. Now, one of the disgusting things that, I, that happened in the aftermath of Abacha in Nigeria, when he passed away, and it's, it, it, it leaks into what you actually said about the pragmatist approach to actually tackling corruption in Africa. What, I, what was actually done was that as opposed to actually jailing them indefinitely or doing whatever needs to be done to get all of our money back, we at Nigeria adopted a pragmatic approach where they just said pay back 1.2 billion dollars out of the 4 billion that you actually stole 
and all's good. And it just, it left, I know what you said about it might not be popular or anything else, but it actually leaves a very bitter taste in one's mouth where it feels as if people are actually being rewarded for stealing or for actually looting a country, a very poor nation. And um, so sometimes it actually feels like, yeah, I understand the pragmatic approach of probably going through the courts or going through anything else might actually be very difficult or might actually take a long time. But surely it has to pay more than actually making somebody wealthy beyond their wildest dreams for generations and generations to come. Yes, ma'am. Hi, can I just ask two questions? Um, you refer to the fact that aid um, allows governments to steal tax dollars. Um, does that mean you're against aid? And then the other thing is just, what do you think of the Chinese investment in Africa and the effect that that has on corruption? Thanks. Can you take this? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think that the Abacha case, um, and I think any case in any country which has an extractive industry, to be honest, uh, is always mind-boggling because the figures are, you know, if you're talking, you tell somebody, uh, I mean, payback, uh, I mean, this one was a bit, uh, I don't want to, to judge uh, the figures, you know, where you're saying, you know, payback a quarter, one would think, you know, payback pay um, 90%. Uh, uh, if that's what it takes, um, and that should be accompanied by lustration. Uh, so you, you and can never; those resources can never be used to hold public office uh, ever again. And um, should any resources be found in your name that you have not revealed, then you will be criminally prosecuted expeditiously for those. Um, I think it's um, it's. It's not a comfortable. Um, it's not a comfortable area uh, of discussion, and it's, it's never popular. Uh, and I'm always ready to to, to engage in it, um, because otherwise, uh, what are we doing? In some of these other cases, we're talking about people going scot free. Um, you know, many of these uh, kleptocrats die. Uh, with these resources in the hands of their families. And one of the most uh, odious things is, then, is to see, you know, five, six years, uh, sorry, two, two generations down, those resources have come back. Those members of that family are, are standing for senators, governors, and, and using the same, same resources. So illustration is very key. It says you're out of public office because uh, of, of where your resources have have come from. Um, it's never neat. Uh, it's never. It's never tidy. And I'm not saying that you you, you do away with uh, prosecution of uh, of corruption. Um, that is the that is the idea. Um, secondly, yes, aid can be fungible. Um, I think that often. I'm not. That doesn't mean that I'm against aid. Uh, I'm much more for aid needs to be smarter and to acknowledge the smartness of elites that it is engaging with, that these are experts at what they're doing. <laughs> and the legal advice they're getting is top-notch legal advice from here on how to maneuver their way about. I think that's, that, that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, with regard to Chinese investment in Africa, I think it's a, 
it's a reality, it's a positive thing in that they are investing heavily in infrastructure. With regard to governance, there are concerns, major concerns, that um, um, it's leaving us uh, in the lurch. Uh, I think it would uh, require us as African countries to define our relationship with BRIC, just Brazil, India, China, Russia, uh, to define our relations with them a lot more uh, clearly. It's right now we seem to be using those, the, the, the relationship with the BRIC countries as leverage for, for our relationship with the West, instead of developing really holistic relationships uh, with, with, with China. Uh, so we deal with China, let them build our roads, cut down our trees, but people still come to Harrods to do their shopping. Um, let them go to Guangdong, let our students go to China. Let us learn about the Chinese. Let, let us study them and what they're thinking. And uh, we've had in Kenya, for example, relationship with them since the 12th century. So long history. Uh, and uh, we need to make the relationship a bit more holistic and find out and exploit the leverage that we have with regard to that relationship. Well, um, it's 8 o'clock now. I've, I've seen a lot of hands up. And I'm under very strict instructions to end at 8 o'clock. I think we owe our guest at least applause for thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.